The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. The Dog Tag Podcast may at times cover sensitive topics including, but not limited to, suicide, abuse, violence, severe mental illness, sex, drugs, and alcohol addiction. You are advised to refrain from watching or listening to the Dog Tag Podcast if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. Neither the company, host, director, or guests shall at any time be liable for the content covered causing offense, distress, or other reaction. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. Joe Rombolo's Medicare Made Easy works hard for our veterans. Did you know you may be eligible to enroll in a Medicare plan and keep your VA health and life benefits? We can offer a Medicare Advantage plan specifically designed for veterans and spouses who are entitled to VA health benefits. CHAMP VA or TRICARE for Life may offer benefits you might otherwise not receive. We can find a plan that best suits your needs. Call Joe at 314-753-0792. That's 314-753-0792. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast at the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your host, Jason Galvin. And our today's guest is Dominic Masters, United States Marine. Welcome, Dominic. Hey, man. How's it going? Thanks for having me back. It's going great, man. Thank you for coming back. Um, Yeah. You know, we were just talking before we got started that uh, we're going to be doing these podcasts together. So not only are you a guest of tonight's podcast, but you're going to also be a future uh, host of the podcast with me. I'm really excited about that. So how do you feel about that? I'm so pumped. I've uh, I've always had kind of a want to do it, you know, kind of a weird like fantasy thing that I've always wanted to do. I think it's great. That's how um, that's how I get a lot of entertainment. And I just think a lot of people do. And after talking, I think we've got a good plan and some really good stories to tell and i think we're gonna do some really good stuff here absolutely and speaking of stories uh dominic we did your first podcast a few months ago uh, we talked about uh quite a few great things so if the if the listener out there wants to catch up uh before listening to this podcast i would highly recommend going back and listening to dominic's podcast um, it's got some excellent uh, information in there great story great start to the story but now what we're going to do, is, you know, Dominic and I really wanted to move this story forward with, you know, the common saying that, uh, you know, you know, after you come home, then the next war kind of starts. You know, there's a different different war that happens when uh, a Marine gets home, when a, when a veteran gets home. So, Dominic, with that being said, I kind of want to just hand over the mic to you, per se, and let you kind of tell us what's on your heart about, uh, about um, coming home. Uh, all right. Um, first of all, if any 
anybody listening did check out the first one, thank you for listening to that. Um, is as tough as the war and and that kind of stuff is, it's a pretty common denominator with with me and my buddies, anyways. That when you get home, it, it's a, now it's a different type of a battle, right? A war, whatever you'd want yes. to call it. You know, I think it's got a lot to do with the fact that you, well, I, it, me personally, from here in St. Louis, I didn't know anyone else like the next people closest to me that I knew that could relate to me were Vietnam friends of mine's dad. Right. And gotcha. these dudes, they didn't, they didn't come home and talk about stuff like we do. So, um, a good friend of mine, I, I got, when I got home, I grew up poor single mom. So I had like a couple different buddies who I could go to their house and have dinner every Sunday night. Right. So I grew up in this guy's house, but he never talked about anything. And my buddy Jason was like, he never talks about anything. Well, when I got over to their house, when I got home, he was like, hey, come sit down on the deck with me. So me and Jay grabbed a beer and went and sat on the deck with his dad. And he starts talking about, I guess, I think what brought it up was the temperature. Fucking hot over there. And then I'm like, <laughs> yeah, dude. You know, and we were talking about, I think that the hottest day we recorded was 127 or something. Wow. So he starts telling me this story about how it, and I know this is very common for the Vietnam guys who are just amazing, but, um. I think it rained it, it, just in his this one particular story. It rained for like 60 days. I mean, it was it's it's crazy to think that when it rains for 10 minutes, I want to I'm done with the rain already. He was saying that with the rain, the humidity and the temperature, you would have your T-shirt, your underwear, your socks. And by the end of the day, from moving so much in the bush and, and running back and forth, all you would be left with was the elastic. Wow. Like the rest of the cotton and everything. It would just, it just like disintegrates, you know? So he starts telling us this story and I was talking to my friend after that, we, we kind of left and went and did whatever we did. And he was like, dude, he's never said anything about Vietnam whatsoever to anyone in our family. He had a, he got a purple heart um, and it was stolen out of the mail. Wow. And so my buddy's mom, they got a letter to the house, you know, that, and his mom was like, well, where's your purple heart? He was like, I don't know. And I don't care, you know? And so relating to really anyone I didn't have, I, I had no one to relate to. So that turned into this thing where great job. We're really happy that you're home. Let's go have a drink. And as fun as that is for a little while, the unfortunate part is what I was doing for sure. And I know a lot of guys and girls. I only know a lot of military guys, but I, I know females have the same problem is that going out and having drinks with buddies, you, you start to not think about it. Well, then the next time it does come up, you just want to not think about it again. So, so obviously that becomes habitual, right? And, right. and it's just like to them, it, it's, it's just a party and we're happy you're home. And that's great. It's, it's great when, when people are happy to see you, but, um, it became, it became a thing where when I did start to think about it, I knew that avenue that I could go to get it off of my mind. So what you're saying is, cause you didn't have an outlet of, of guys to talk to or to, to, you know, walk through this, uh, thing you did, you turn to the, to the alcohol to help you forget it. Right. Because going back to the first one, if you didn't hear it, I'll, we'll go back on that one a little bit. Um, I had my time in the Marine Corps got cut short. My mom got sick. Uh, the rest of my unit echo two one went back over and they were in Fallujah. So, now, not only do, it, it's not like they were back home and just living in Texas and Maine and California and Philly and all across the country. They were gone. And again, there were no cell phones to just be texting these dudes in Iraq going, hey man, how's it going? So 
I didn't even have them. I couldn't even call the guys that could understand me and that did know what I was going through and because they hadn't even started their journey home yet. They were still right in the middle of the worst place in the world at the time, Fallujah, Iraq in 04. So I had no one. But I didn't even want anybody to know that I was feeling that way either, right? Because right. that's weak. So let's just party. And so that became years of couple DWIs, um, drinking, fighting, it, it, like – it, it was just acting out behavior to try to not focus on this thing that is just getting stronger inside. Yeah. You know, they say addiction is just, I've been sober now. Um, this will be seven, seven years in September. Congratulations, man. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm happy to be able to say that, but, um, I went to a 30 day rehab facility down in Florida. And, and one of their things they always said was, you think you've got your addiction kicked. It's outside doing push-ups, waiting on you to fuck up and come back. It's right. just getting stronger and inviting you in all the time. It's always easy. Come on, man. This is where you're happy, remember? And you, after a while, your brain can play that trick on you, and it does. You know, it plays that trick on you that goes like, why are we dealing with all this emotional trauma and, like, being sad and shit? Let's just go forget about everything. Well, the flip side to that is when you sober up the next day or maybe wake up in jail like I did a couple times or, you know, you got beat the fuck up because you were mouthing off to somebody. You didn't All those things. The next day when you wake up and reality sets back in, now you've gotten yourself maybe into trouble or you just feel terrible. You don't remember any of it anyway. And now you're right back to square one. So it just it's a very vicious cycle that you, you just keep putting yourself through if you allow that, which I did. Yeah. It's a dangerous road to go down, you know, to, uh, you know, but you did go down that road, you know, and, um, it's difficult because, you know, you gotta, if you, if you, if you think about it, I mean, you had so many things playing into it, right? You had your guys that were gone. You were at home. They were, they were gone. You were, um, isolated from people that you knew. Uh, you didn't really know anybody in St. Louis. So you get that isolation, maybe some guilt, you know, because you're not with your guys or whatever that might be. And, and that's a terrible mix for, uh, Abuse, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and that that survivor's guilt thing, exactly. Too, you know that always that always played a role in it. And then movies started coming out, and I remember when I was growing up, I don't know, it, it had to have been my mom because she was the one that told me everything. But like, you don't ask people that have been into wars certain things. You just don't do that. Right. It's not okay. It's you know, be respectful and all that stuff. And I mean, people just forgot all of that shit, and they would just come up and go, hey, man, and, and throw these, and you're like, whoa, you know? And so you're dealing with it, but you're not. And then there's tons of people that are just really thank you and thank you and thank you, and but it's it's not enough. Tell us why it's not enough. I don't know. I really don't. I think I think for me, again, on the first podcast, my time was cut short. I had I had an idea to stay in the Marines. I wanted to do other things. Um, so my time getting cut short, friends dying, not going back with those guys. I was very, I felt very unaccomplished. Okay. Even, even though we accomplished so much as a unit, you know, we, we, we did a lot of really good things. I personally felt very a void. There was something was missing. And there was again, a puzzle piece missing for sure. Yeah. But again, Go back to doing that kind of, just the training. I mean, the, the training is so awesome. And then you come back here and it's like, I guess I'll get into the painters union and go paint buildings. 
Because you go, you're going really hard at a high level. Yeah. Full speed. Yeah. And then you, then all of a sudden you're not full speed anymore. And you're in, would you say it's almost like you're directionless a little bit? For sure. Yeah. Aimless, just hopeless. Just, and then, so that turns into what, what can I do to make this feeling go away too? So it's all about avoidance. It's all about avoid. It was for me all about avoiding real feelings because like you just said, we're sixth gear, seventh gear, eighth gear type of people. Mm-hmm. And the rest of this world is very not that. I mean, there's some jobs that are awesome, you know, and, and they give you that kind of buzz. But not having that is it's really boring. It's really boring. And not that you always want to be playing with the fire, but, I mean, it's it doing just regular jobs and paying bills and everyday stuff, it, it, it does. It gets boring. So you, you got to look to, you got to like, I had to act out. Do you think that's why maybe you and and others go to the to the drugs and alcohol because it speeds things up? It makes life on the edge. Yeah. Well, the dopamine and serotonin, you know that 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 um, that release that says everything's going to be okay. For me personally, um, alcohol. It started with alcohol at a very young age and smoking pot and stuff like that, and then um, I was into methamphetamine and, and painkillers big time. So those drugs create a very far out, like way far away than the normal, right? On speed, I mean, everything's okay. You are seriously Superman. And people, I am by no means advocating this. It is the worst possible thing you can do for yourself. Please don't ever try it. But I'm I'm here to tell you about it, and I'd like to hopefully help somebody say, no, that's not a good idea because this fucking wacko was talking about it. But it makes you feel again. Maybe that's maybe that's where I'm trying to go with this. It makes you feel something, and and anything is better than being numb, you know. And even the stupid fucking painkillers, you just you like you just nodding out, and it's 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 all terrible. But it's a feeling. It's something, and right. I think and I think that's probably a good way. I've never, I know I've thought about it before, but you haven't gone down that road. I don't know before. Yeah, I'm sure I have, but maybe it makes a lot of sense talking to you about it now. It's a feeling that I. That's a great way to say it, man. I think that that could open up someone's eyes to what they may not know that they're feeling. Right, something. Right, they're feeling right. This maybe euphoria or not feeling pain. Right, whatever it might be that they're feeling something. But the question is, where? So where can people we? The community, even people non-military that have have had very traumatic experiences, where can you find that in some kind of a healthy fashion? You know, like, well, why don't you pick up golfing? It's like what you just said is ridiculous, and you have no idea what I'm talking about here. But there, but it could be something. Just it could be something like that. You know, because unless you're going to be a police officer or you know what I mean, like in that line of work. There's not a whole lot of. So am I hearing you right? Are you saying like find something that you can master be and, and become great at so that it's something you're trying to pursue and achieve to give you that next level of feeling? Is that what you're saying or am I missing what you're saying? Well, yeah, find like something that'll give you that same buzz. Okay. In the, in the sobriety community. Okay. I should say in the running, the long distance running community, you would find, if you were to so look, a lot of substance abuse. And the reason for that is, and I, I enjoy running myself, because there is that 
dopamine rush. You know, you go through those highs and lows on a half marathon. It's, you know, two hours of like, I can't do this. Yes, I can. I can't do this. Yes, I can. I'm going to do it. I'm going to beat my time from last time. And you, you, you go through those highs and lows and that's exactly what addiction is. You feel great for a while and you're out with your friends and everything's great and, and who cares about anything and life is good and we're here and let's just go for it. And then when you come down, it's the worst feeling in the world. You hate yourself and everybody else and you know, it's, it's tough to get off that path. So, all right, let's say once you start running, well, my fucking legs blown off. So give me another one, smart guy. And it's like, okay, shit. So how can I, how, how can each individual come up with whatever their thing is? Right. I, I don't, I don't, that's the question. That's the question. How do you divert that type of energy into something positive? Well, go to the gym. I know that's an easy thing to say, but not everybody wants to go to the gym. Right. right. So how do we find that answer to help people? It's kind of like, you know, when you, when you, or think about, hey, I want to go to the gym, and you kind of try to talk yourself out of it. But when you go and you're done, you're like, hey, man, that felt really good. I Absolutely. need to do this again. You yeah. know? It's your brain talking you out of it, though. Right. It's the same as your brain talking you into doing drugs. Okay. Talk yeah. about that a little bit. You're, you, I knew, I knew that I was not meant to be, okay, I grew up and I knew the difference between people who smoke pot and people who were on speed. It's just a very bad look. Um Painkillers weren't so relevant like growing up wise, but it was like speed. And I, I remember seeing these people and they're very close to home, very close to home family members. And I remember thinking, they look like fucking weirdos and their mouth is all crazy. And they, you just, you, you, you get, uh, what's that called? Gaunt. Like yeah. when you're so thin and you, you look like a skeleton and stuff. Right. And I remember thinking like, that's a disgusting look that I don't want anything to do with. And the, the way that, it got started for me and I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you and people don't judge me yet because this story does take a good turn. But, um, I had twins. I had a two year old and then twins right after that. And I found myself so just exhausted because I was trying to, to do this dad thing. I didn't have a dad around. He was busy outlaw motorcycle club, meth dealer. Okay. So that, you know, that's the stock I come from. And I didn't even know this man that well, yet I almost, I, I really did turn out just like him for a long time. So I found myself just exhausted trying to do this, this job of parenthood, which is just a, a really hard job to try to do correctly and stick with. And again, man, just being around people, it was just like, you want to hit? And like I was saying, I know that this isn't me. I'm not a fucking meth head. I am not a pill head. I, that's just not who I am. I've just done these things that I consider great and they're, they're personal um, achievements of mine that I'm very proud of and that, frankly, no one that I know from back home went and did really, you know? So I've, I've made this thing of myself and it, yes, it got taken away, but hey, man, I'm here. So then the, the meth just started and it gave me a feeling. It gave me a feeling back, you know, and an unexpected feeling, it sounds like. Well, in a great way. Right. In a very terrible way. Right. Very clearly, very, no, yeah, very we, bad way. But at the time, it was like comfortably numb. That's what I... that That's a really good way to put Pink it. Comfortably Floyd, man. Numb. Yeah. That was what I was searching for. I don't want to be high or low. I like... That's a great way to put it, man. Because a lot of people can't put that into words. Yeah. Comfortably numb. Yeah. You're... And and still to this day, in years of sobriety and everything else, my brain, you can ask my wife, poor lady, 
it just goes nonstop, right? And it was either like be able to keep up with it on the meth or slow it down on the painkillers. But either way, I can't be, I don't want to be in the, I just want to be, I want all this to just slow down or speed up and then just go away. I just, I know that sounds very contradictory. Like those are two very opposite drugs, but the combination of both is, I think, where I found some kind of normalcy or, or what I perceived as happiness at the time. Right. But again, I know that that's not true. So I'm going through this terrible cycle and every day, like I would smoke in my bathroom, let's say, and like, I would look in the mirror and I remember looking at myself going like, this is not you, man. This is not you. This might be people that are very close to you, but this isn't you. And the drug does that thing to your brain where it goes, yeah, it is. It's fine. Don't what do you, who do you have to prove anything to? You've already proven yourself, you know, and it's all these lies and this bullshit. And uh, uh, one thing about meth, and I think most, most of those type of hard drugs is that it runs your dopamine and serotonin. Um, what are those called in your brain? Uh, receptors. Right. It, it runs those receptors so hard that eventually, well, first of all, you lose that, um, you lose the, what is serotonin and dopamine? That is a, not a chemical, but it's a um, hormone. No, it's not a hormone chemical. Okay. You, when you're, when you're smoking that stuff, it fires those receptors so hard that first of all, you're going to lose the dopamine. You're going to lose that. Everything's okay. Feeling that you're chasing. And then on the back nine of that, they stop working altogether. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was a huge problem for me was that when smoking a gram of meth no longer even got me high. Now, what the fuck do you do? Right. And for some people, it's shooting it up. For some people, it's, you know, and, and the same with the painkillers, man. And I will say one thing, and I cannot explain this, and I've never been able to explain it before. I don't have a fear of needles. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a tattooed guy. I did this when I was young and, and going nuts, but I, it's not a fear of needles. I think that I knew so many people that OD'd from heroin, and, and that's how heroin Generally, people don't just go to a party on a Saturday night and get a bag of heroin and shoot it. Generally, it starts with you get a tooth pulled, Mm. you get some Vicodin, you can't get that script filled anymore, but now you really like it the way it feels. Then your buddy might have a couple, and then you might be able to afford some for a while, but eventually the money's going to run out. Painkillers in some cities and some places I've heard can get like a dollar, a milligram, or way more than that, so that becomes too expensive. So most people go to heroin because it's cheap. I had known so many people locally that had OD'd from shooting heroin that we were all, we all started liking painkillers together and they went to my good buddy, Rob Manis, man, he's, he's not with us anymore. But I remember when he started shooting dope, we were at a, we were at a bar one night and I gave him a hug and I told him I loved him. And he was like, well, what's, what's this all about? You know, what are you being all real for? And I say, because I know what you're doing and I know what's going to happen. And sure enough, you know, it happened and he, he died. And But I think I knew that if I ever felt that, it would definitely kill me. And I'm an emotional person, so um, I'm emotional when it comes to riding a motorcycle. I want to, I, I would ride 130 if I could on my chopper. I just, I anything I do, I'm going to do 
all the way. All the, all the way, yeah. So even when it came to snorting pills and stuff, you know, it, it got, it was like, it, it was offered to me, you know, and I was just like, dude, if I stick that needle in my arm, I know I'm going to die. So for some reason, I was willing to put all this terrible stuff into my body and I was willing to make my brain lie to me, but I wasn't quite willing to die. Like I wasn't willing, I, you, I wasn't willing to die for it. So clearly I had, I knew that this isn't, you know what I mean? I don't Absolutely. think I'm, I don't think I'm making that up all these years later. So right. I know that I didn't want to die for this shit, but I didn't know what else to do or how else to find it. It was like a stranglehold, man. It wasn't letting go. Oh. But you knew that you couldn't it's go weird. the extra mile and, and, and start doing the heroin, man. It is wild. And when it runs out, when you can't find any more speed and you can't find any more pills, you've never experienced shit like that. Do you I think mean, a lot of guys that, that were in your same situation, and I'm, I'm saying a lot of guys, but I mean like absolutely. veterans. I know right? what you mean. You know, um, and, you, and you correct me anywhere where I make a misstep here, but do you think a lot of guys get to a point where you were – and they and they run out of something, or or they don't know where else to get something, and and that's where they end up taking their lives. Are we talking about drug overdose, or are we talking about suicide? Like suicide because they they couldn't get any more drugs, and or they they can't get the feeling anymore from the drugs that they were taking. Absolutely, it, we'll we'll start with the drug one. I think, especially, pills will kill you. Meth will kill you. It'll all kill you. But heroin will kill you, kill you quick. I think that if today you're having a good day and you, you normally shoot what I don't even know, like I said, I've never shot, you normally shoot this much. If tomorrow you're having a bad day or you started withdrawing before you could get some and you think you need to shoot more, I just think people don't, I mean, none of us are doc, nobody's a doctor that's shooting heroin, right? Right. So they just do it kind of on the fly and their body's like, your heart shuts down and th- that's it. In, unless they can get to you with that Narcan stuff quick enough, it's over. And there's that that's it. As far as the suicide goes, and I unfortunately have way too much experience with that too, with friends, um, mostly Marines, unfortunately. I think that they can't find something. I you know, I just think that they're alone. Yeah. Alone and have no answers, no matter how much therapy you go do, no matter who you talk to. You just feel misunderstood. You don't want to feel like a patient. Like, please don't talk to me like a patient, man. I'm a, you know, that's a good way to put that, man. And I know very active, um, very active, professionally um, sound. You know, these people are doing well, and it's like that thing is missing. You know, and I'm not a veteran, uh, but I've been around military people my whole life, and you know, there's there's a lot of things that. Uh, that I didn't realize that I needed, uh, that I didn't realize that I needed counseling for, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I always had this obstacle in front of me of, man, I don't want to pay someone to hear my problems because I felt like it was unreal. It wasn't, it wasn't genuine if I had to pay somebody, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a service. It's a service and like, or the, you know, but I had to get past that. And so my, my message in that is it took me 42 years mm-hmm. to figure out that, Hey man, if you need to talk to somebody, you need to talk to somebody. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm not even a veteran. You yeah. know, I've been, exp- I'm a gold star family member, but yeah, I'm not, I've never been in the heat of the battle, been a veteran or anything like that. But if I know that I feel that way as just a regular citizen, I can only imagine how a veteran may feel alone and maybe not want to talk to someone who hasn't experienced that. 
because maybe they don't have a counselor that's been in their shoes. Right. They feel like they can talk to, or maybe they feel like me and like they don't want to pay someone to talk to them. You know. Yeah. So I mean, you know, you can you can go, you know, you can get real dark, you know, for people. Yeah. Especially when you isolate because you don't feel like anybody understands you. That's where the darkness comes in. Right. You know. Right. And and then you're just in your own head and. Unfortunately, I can relate. Um, I I can honestly say that I have never I have never thought that taking my own life was a good idea because I'm either going to be a drug addict or uh, this or that. I'm going to be something, but it's gonna it's gonna be a blaze that I go out in. Not you know, and and I and and this is a fucked up way to think. I know, but I I don't think I have the balls to do it. Probably for sure. Like it's way too final. You know, they say that uh, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Yeah. And that's real, you know. But um, I wanted to go back to the, the therapy thing. Sure. In the first podcast, we talked about the VA a little bit, right? And right. I, I'm, I don't want to just go bagging on the VA. They get enough of that. I'm, You know, there's plenty of podcasts you can listen to, folks, if you want to hear the VA get torn apart. <laughs> I, I, I'm not into that. But um, a problem that I had with therapy I would go to the VA, and like I said in the first podcast, they always start with the Freudian thing about your childhood, which I agree with. My childhood was a little wild, a little fucked up, and and like I said, my dad wasn't around, didn't tell me he loved me enough, so I still to this day seek validation from men, and I know that sounds crazy, but I do. I just I just wanted the dude to tell me like, "Good job, I'm proud of you, I love you." That it was like it was pretty simple, you know. He didn't pay child support. He did really nothing for me and my sister or my mom. I just wanted the guy to tell me, like, I wanted to know kind of who I am and where I come from, you know, just a little that, bit of that. So we would always go back to this childhood thing and naturally it would fall on that because I had this mother who flaws and all loved me so much. Like I had a, I have a very special bond with my mom. And so I would come in and you would sit me down and you would go, all right, well, let's talk about your childhood. Where were your parents? And, this? and so I get into this thing with you and I go, hey, man, you know, this this counselor or, or psychologist or whatever, Jason, hey, good guy. You know, I think we got I think we kind of click here. And so I might come back and see you again. And I'm like, cool, we're building this relationship. And this happened to me a few times and it's happened to some of my brothers the same amount, if not more times. They're just more resilient and they'll keep going back where I was like, fuck that you would show up. So now our third visit we're supposed to have, I walk in and it's not Jason. And I go, what's going on? Is he sick or something? Like, Oh no, he took a job transfer to DC and he's going to be doing this. And I'm like, okay, what? like, do you have my file? Well, no, why don't we just start over? My name is so-and-so what's your, you know, and let's, let's, let's talk about your child. So I did this thing because I thought it was important and I kept going around this circle it was like the drug thing i just kept going around in circles with these people and then i'd show up and at some point just being kind of a shithead like i am i started to just manipulate the situation to get the drugs that i wanted because i'm like you if jason cared about me so much not that you wouldn't take a job offer to benefit you and your family but it's like i'm i'm letting you guys in and and i'm getting nothing in return because we haven't gotten to kindergarten yet and you're gone now i'm starting all the way back over that's a really good point that you're making, man. Keep going. So I I did that dance for a while. I took a long break from therapy because I'm like, I definitely don't trust this thing now. You people keep going. We're getting back into Pandora's box or Dominic's box or whatever, and it, I'm not going anywhere but back down to zero again. 
I was feeling okay when I walked in here. Now you got me talking about my fucking dad that doesn't, he's got better stuff to do than be my dad. And, and so I'm back to sad and pissed off and now I'm definitely going to have a drink now. So, um, years later when I started dating my now wife, Alicia, she met me like at pretty close to rock bottom, like pretty close. There was a, a person that she worked with whose son was going through some of these things. And he was seeing a civilian psychologist. His name is Dr. Larry Shapiro. And I talked about him on the first one too. And I do give him whatever a, a quarter of, there's these couple main people that are the reason I am talking to you today. And um, he's one of them. Now, Dr. Shapiro started out and I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to try to get him on here. Cause I, he, people need to hear this man because I'll tell you why he was in medicine. He was in psychology for a while, certified and all that stuff, got out of it, went into the financial game. And I don't know exactly what he was doing there, but his brother, if I remember the story correctly, his brother was some like two star or three star general in the army. So his brother was doing you know, back and forth deployments and, and talking when they would see each other at, at Christmas or whatever, he would talk about, you know, another one of my soldiers took their life. And Dr. Shapiro kept hearing these terrible stories about these guys coming home and something made him get back into it. So he got, again, if I butcher this, when Dr. Shapiro comes on here, I'm sorry, but I, you know, I'm, I'm talking him up here. He got certified back into psychology, um, for PTSD, not just for veterans, but he ended up kind of just being in that lane. So a third-party friend told my girlfriend at the time, maybe you guys should go see this guy. We went and saw him, and Doc Shapiro's not military. We He's from New York. I mean, we have little, very little in common. But when I walked in the room that day, even high on dope, I could feel something. And I think that's really important when it comes to therapy too. Absolutely. A, if you're faithful to me as my therapist and and you show me that you actually care and and we build that trust because now remember, I have no trust for therapy whatsoever. I'm like, right. you're going to be gone too, aren't you? You're going to retire next week and I got to start over with so-and-so. And I don't know what it was, but he he and I clicked. And I think it had something to do with the fact that he wouldn't take my bullshit. And I, I know that he knew I was high. Pupils, I mean, it's very, when someone's been down that road, especially with meth, it's very, the tells are, I mean, if you know what to look for, it's very easy to identify. And I think he just knew, and I, and I told him straight up, I'm not into this at all. I'm here for her. She wants me to be doing this. For some reason, she fucking cares about me. I don't want to be here, man. I'm telling you right now. So I went in with that attitude and the way he fought back, I think was what it was. So I think if people were able to find someone, I don't know if you're going to find somebody like Dr. Shapiro, but there's, there are other people out there. I'm just saying this is a special man. I think if you found someone that's willing to fight for you, fight for me like I fought for my brothers. Hey, I love it. Do that for me. And then I'll fucking, I'll show you what loyalty is, you know? And so when I found that, I was like, I got to ride with this dude. He's, he's, he's my guy. I know he can fix me. And it took a while and I was still high and I was lying to him and trying to manipulate the situation, but he wouldn't let that happen. He wasn't having it. No, 
but he wasn't like aggressive about it or anything like that. He just let me think I was kind of enjoy- and looking back, I'm like, he's so fucking brilliant. Mm-hmm. He knew exactly what I was doing and what I was there for. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't give up on me. And that's what I needed. My dad gave up on me. All these other people had given up on me and this dude would not give up on me. And neither would Alicia. Alicia would make me go. I mean, the one time I was in total withdrawal. I mean, just bad. And I'm like, I'm not going. She's like, yeah, you are. We're going. You, you know, you need to go talk to him, especially today. And that was one of the best sessions that we had had. And it's it, so him sticking in there with me, man, I need that kind of loyalty. I need you to be a dog for me. I need you to fight for me because I'll fucking fight for you just like that. And do you think that feeling that you had with, with that, what you just said here was something you had with your brothers when you were actively, you know, with those guys in the Marines coming up through, you know, all the way from boot camp up to serving with the guys until you left all the way. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what it is. And that's exactly, there's another good point you just brought up. I think that we're all searching for that when we come out here and it's like, if I call Gomez and Fullerton, if I, I can name all, if I call these dudes and go, Hey man, can you be here tomorrow at four o'clock from California? He'll fucking be here. There are civilians. When, if you call and it's like, Hey, let's go shooting tomorrow. Be here at nine. They show up at nine forty-five. When I said nine, I meant eight forty-five. Right. You know? And it's like, so you search for that and you know, you have to kind of understand that you're not going to get that out of everybody. And that's okay. You know, that, that is so true, man. I mean, yeah, your expectations, your expectations become, I'm willing to do this for you, even though we're not in Iraq, we're in, we're in wonderful St. Charles County, Missouri, and nothing too crazy is going to happen here. I still expect that. And maybe my expectations are too high, but not for certain people. So it can't be unrealistic. Right. Because I know, a, I know a bunch of dudes that would absolutely be there at 845. No question. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So tell, you know, let's turn a corner here for a second. Let's do it. So we've gotten through kind of some of the bad spots that you were in, man. And you said you, when you, when you got with the doc there, you were, you were uh, almost at rock bottom. Yeah. So walk us through how you got to rock bottom and then, and then bring us up the mountain a little bit of, of coming out. Let's go. Let's, let's end this thing positive. So, um, he got me hooked up with this lady named Cheryl Reed. She's with, um, now I believe she's with Focused Marines Foundation, but at the time, oh shit, I kind of forgot. It could have been separate five fund. Anyway, she got me thirty days at this uh, rehab facility in Florida. I went down there and did that. There was some crazy, crazy shit going on in rehab. I was fortunate in the fact that I'm a veteran. They had this house, this like section just for us, so. There was that thing, right? We, were, we all had our problems, and we were all addicts, and we were all in rehab, but we were all veterans. So, um, but there was like, they would, they would take people to Walmart once a week or something, and some of these people were local. So they'd use their two phone calls a week and have their guy meet them in aisle eight behind the paper plates and leave the dope, and here's the money. And like, there, it was wild in rehab. So... I took from rehab a very important uh, phrase, um, three words, however you, people, places, and things. That's something that stuck with me to this day. That's something that when I go over to Scott Air Force Base and talk to these guys in a recovery program over there, that's something that I, <clears throat> I try to 
just nail into people's brain like that those three things if you can change those three things and i know how hard it is to pick up and move people i really do i can't expect everyone to go all right i'm moving i know how difficult that can be i know how hard it can be to not speak to your mom and your sister for two years because they have addiction problems your mom that raised you who is the person in your life your best friend you know i know how that i trust me people I've been through this and I'll tell you all the stories you want. Email us and I'll tell you anything you want to know. But people, places, and things played a huge role in my life. I got out of rehab and did like four months clean. I was on those pills. I can't think of it, but they're a, it's an opiate blocker and, and alcohol. So in order to get up over the wall of these blockers, like it's almost LD, like it's lethal. Again, Alicia was very up to par on you will be taking that every single day. But what I didn't do was change my people, places, and things. Mm. I still lived in the same house, same neighborhood. So even though I'm clean, I still want to hang out with my buddies. But I know what your eyes look like when you just snorted an oxy. I can fight that off for a while. Like, no, nah, man, I'm doing so good. I got three months. You know, I'm, I'm doing great. Life is actually pretty good, you guys. You should, you know, you're not going to talk people into some shit they don't want to do. So I didn't change the people I was around. Sure enough, start, stop taking those, the blockers. Um, and got right back into it. I go in to see Doc Shapiro one time, and uh, this was September 21st, 2016. I stopped taking those, go right back to my old behaviors. Alicia knows. She's very aware at this point. See, because I blame PTSD and this war on my actions. Like, this is why I can't sleep for four days in a row, because this is what people are like. Well, her not knowing, she bought it for a while. She's no dummy. She started researching and, and then she started researching and she just knew the people I was hanging with. When I hit rock bottom, I remember the day she's like, we, you have got to tell me what's going on. I said, all right, stay here. She was at the kitchen table. I went and got all the paraphernalia. Jason, I had hidden little compartments up under the sink. I mean, it was, I, I went to great lengths to keep addiction is my secret. It's a lot of people's secret. If my secret's out, it's not fun anymore. I brought all this paraphernalia to her and was like, this is what's going on. Um, we go see Doc Shapiro. He has been hitting me with this going to the Wounded Warrior Foundation, Wounded Warrior Project. They have a thing called uh, Project Odyssey. This is a thing where men, women, military, um, you, you basically go to the woods. Like you go, it's, it's outdoor activities. It's keeping you busy. So I think I was... Four weeks clean at the time. They call you and do a little interview. And I was very upfront and honest. And all they really wanted to know was, was, was I going to go into withdrawal while I'm like out in Arkansas? This is where we went. We went down to Arkansas for this particular odyssey. Are you going to go into withdrawal while you're here? And I'm like, no, I'm four weeks out. Like that's, that stuff's over. So I go September 21st, 2016. Alicia and I go see Dr. Shapiro. And he was wanting me to get in this Project Odyssey thing. I wanted to do it, but I, I knew that I, I had a good feeling it would be final. And so I was scared of that too. Now I'm going to leave the only friend I have in the, my weird mind. Um, we go out to the car. Alicia and I were leaving this appointment. And she said, listen, and keep in mind, this is my girlfriend. My girlfriend has been taking care of my then, I think the twins were four, maybe three and my oldest is four or five. Alicia's been just running the show because I'm an addict and I can't, I just can't do any of this. 
We go out to the car, and she says, Dominic, I love you very much. I'll do anything for you. I think I've proven that, and I love those children so much more. But I won't watch this anymore. I can't watch you kill yourself. I just can't do it. And I knew that she was serious because, of course, she should have. Of course, we should have had this conversation earlier, and she should have gotten out of there. You know what? Like, what? Why would you not? And I remember I looked at her and said, "All right, then I quit." She was like, "You quit what?" And I said, "I just quit." She was like, "Okay." So we left, and it was over. I've never. You made your mind up, man. That's what I needed. Again, I needed you to be loyal to me. I needed you to tell me. Now I know. I know you could say that her saying she won't watch this anymore is like she was going to leave, but I think it was her. I know. I know that's an ultimatum, but for some reason, to me, it seemed like she was making the choice up for me or something. It's pretty bold, man. Right. And so I said I quit. And so that that was the last time that I had ever picked up and used drugs. And from there. Everything just got great. I was in a recovery, that same recovery group that I go try to talk to over at Scott Air Force Base. Um, I had a great counselor, Chris Figuera. Hopefully we can talk to him someday. He got, he had an opportunity down at the Ray building, down at the federal building here in St. Louis. Um, It's called the Veterans Curation Program. And it's run by a man named Sonny. And Sonny is an archaeologist who, not his claim to fame, but a big thing that he did in his career was um, excavate some of Saddam's mass graves. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there was there's tons of artifacts that need – it's like data entry, um, but it was, it was some really cool stuff. So he worked for the Corps of Engineers. He comes back, and he's hearing all these stories about people trying to readjust into the civilian world and just not having any – like myself, I didn't have any office skills. So he started this like five month program down at the federal building and that's what you would do faxing and scanning paperwork. And, and also like, um, we were certified from an FBI agent who did, uh, uh, crime scene photos. And I'm actually, I actually have a certification for museum quality photos Nice. From an FBI agent. Yeah, I mean, it's not weird. ironic that you're in a museum right now. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Everything's full circle. So I did this program of a good friend of mine. He was my manager there. His name's Tim Taylor. We'll be talking to him soon. When he, he came down, he came out to Scott to kind of talk to us all. He, he knew there was a bunch of us that were going to apply for it. He's in the back after he does his speech. He's in the back getting a drink or something. And I walked over to him and I said, Hey, my name's Dominic. You know, I'm going to be applying for the program. I said, I know this might sound kind of weird, but like, what's the dress code? And I, he kind of looked at me like, interesting question. He said, listen, man, you can wear jeans and a T-shirt. It can't say fuck you or whatever on the T-shirt, but you are in a federal building. You can wear jeans and a T-shirt. He said, but if you want to maybe stand out a little bit, maybe just a pair of slacks and like a polo. I said, Roger, that done. Alicia takes me, of course, my savior takes me to Target, and we get like three outfits, four outfits, whatever it was. So I'm showing up on that day. Like, this is a huge opportunity for me. You know, I had like Home Depot and done some other jobs and stuff that were not what I should be doing. I show up to this program. I'm a little bit older than most of the people in there, um, but I took it as they, they always preached about if you can get in with the Corps of Engineers, like, get in with the Corps of Engineers. So I took this thing very seriously. Um, There was some younger guys in there and, you know, they're young and we got paid pretty well. So one day a lady comes up and she calls Tim over by the front door and 
they were having a conversation. He said, hey, Dom, come here. I go walking over there. I said, what's up? He's like, hey, what would you think about being a lock and dam operator for the Corps of Engineers? I said, it sounds great. That's what I've always wanted to do. And I was being sarcastic, and they knew that, but I, I was very serious about because I, I'm like, I drank the Kool-Aid. Like, if I can get in with the Corps, I'll be good. It's I know it's job stability. Absolutely. Um, so I got an interview. This story goes kind of weaving in and out, but the fact of the matter is I've been a lock and dam operator at Lock 25 on the Mississippi River in Winfield, Missouri for going on eight years now. That's awesome, man. I have a house and a dog and a toaster and like kids. <laughs> you know what I mean? I've got yeah. all this grown up. I, I moved across the river when you're from North County. The goal growing up is to get across that river into St. Charles. This is where all the rich people live is what I thought as a kid, you know? So we're just normal folk over here. I know, but, but, but from, but I get it, man, living in a duplex in an apartment for my whole life to coming over here and getting a home and, and being a normal adult that I always wanted to be and like a cons- uh, productive member of society. And, and, you know, yeah. I mean, you got, you got a great story. I want to, I want to just for the last few minutes here, I want to ask you, you know, my father-in-law is a recovering alcoholic. He's been, I think he's been sober since 93 or somewhere around there. Okay. Wow. So, but what he told me once and I asked him, you know, I said, you know, what would happen? You know? And he's like, Hey man, I am one drink away from it, it from a snowballing. You know yeah. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So now that you're in this spot that you're in, you've, you've grown, you've come, you're clean, you, you, you've got a good life. How do you maintain where you're at? How would you describe this to someone who might be struggling or might be thinking this is getting harder and harder, man. I might not be able to say no. How do you say no every day? People, places, and things. I, I don't know anyone. I used to be able to, I could see you in a gas station and know he might have a back problem. Let me hit him. Hey man. Any chance you might have a, it, it's weird how you, how, what you're attracted to, you attract. I, I, I'm just one of those people where I can go into a bar and kind of feel out the situation for a minute and know that guy's got some Coke. That guy's definitely just got done smoking. So I don't, I, I don't know anyone who is on, I'm sure I know someone who's on painkillers, but not in an abusive way, nor am I around it, um, but I think I'm telling you this people, places and things, man, it's huge. And and I, a long time ago, when Alicia and I were dating, I had a phone with all those numbers in it. We went on a walk in Florissant down by the river and I threw the phone, like I did people, places and things for real. And, and I know that that's moving over here. We had some really small house in O'Fallon. I mean, it was nothing that we wanted, but I knew that we, I had to make a step away. I knew that people was a huge one places. I can't, I can't be in North County anymore because I can turn down almost any street and figure out where to go. Right. So, so to answer your question, that's my biggest thing is, and like I said in the first podcast, I surround myself with people who like, if they saw me wanting to snort a pill, they just knocked the fuck out of me first of all. But I, I just, I don't, it's not around. I, and this is going to be a tough one for folks who are who are really struggling with it is to how do you not think about it? And the only thing I can say, again, is find some kind of a way to keep that brain of yours busy because it's always going to run amok if you let it. But I think that's that's the best answer I have to your question um, is I don't have it around me, I, but I but I made very long leaps to make that my reality, you know, and. Again, that's hard for people to do, but if you really want it, like I said, 
I didn't talk to my mom for like two years. I had to cancel Thanksgiving one time because I called her and I could tell in her voice. And I'm like, mom, should we cancel? She's like, yeah, maybe we should. And while that broke my heart, it hurt me so much. I respected her so much for not bringing me into that situation because I would have had to have leave, left and like get my kids and they just saw grandma and they don't know what's going on. It would have just been a terrible day for everyone. So I really respected her for doing that for me because she knew I was serious about it, you know? And, uh, man, I know what that struggle is like. I know when it's calling your name every day. But again, if you change the people you're around, the places that you go and the things that you're doing, you will find that you can keep yourself occupied in some other way, shape, or form than ruining your life. Man, what a great way to say that, man. Well, Dominic, we spent the last hour talking, man, and we really appreciate, I really, let me just rephrase it, I really appreciate you sharing your story with me. Yeah. And uh, learning more about you and, man, the struggles that you've overcome. What I can say is that uh, you've got a great support system. Yeah. You know, in your family. Yeah, it's important. And your wife and... And um, you're doing things right, man. And you've come a long way. Yeah, yeah. And I'm super happy to to still be alive and kicking. You know. Well, congratulations on the sobriety, man. I don't want to let that slip. I mean, seven, no. seven, eight years, eight years. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. But man, a long time. Yeah, it's a long time. Yeah. Seven, and you're eight. doing you're doing great, man. Keep it up. Yeah. And uh, it, let's leave these let's leave these listeners with one last thing. Let's do Something it. positive. What What do you want the listeners to hear from you? Uh, last thing here before we close. The fight is worth it. It's it's a very hard road. It can be a really hard road. You're not alone as you think you are. And I know it seems that way. I I still feel alone sometimes in my own little mental um, space. I feel like I'm alone. But when I walk in that door and those kids come up and tell me they love me and that dog shakes his tail and my wife and and you're not alone. It is, it, it is tough. It is tough, but it's so worth it because the drugs and the alcohol and all these things that we use to um, even like social media negativity, all these things we use to get outside of our, our real thoughts are just that they're just, they're just band-aids. They're just, they're fake and they, they really don't have your best interest in mind. And when you can, when you can figure that out, you will find that it's like, the sober, legitimate, legal, positive way to live life is it's very gratifying and it sucks some days, you know, work and bills and all that. It's still tough, but it's way better than sitting in some jail cell in Phoenix, Arizona on gun charges and all kinds of other shit, not knowing your future. And it's like, this is who I am now. Don't let that story be written about you, people. Don't let that happen, man. That's bullshit. You're worth more than that. You're better than that. It's going to take some hard work, but what else are you doing? You're either going to kill yourself or you're going to work hard and love your life again. Get get up and love your life again. Let's do it. Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and sign off of the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum.
the dog tag is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate.